Okay, we're going to be talking about Act 3 in the book of Ruth. And I wanted to start talking about, I want to kind of go back and remind us to be careful how we interpret the love story of Ruth. I think as a woman, if you're like me, you've watched countless romantic movies or romantic comedies. They're romos. <laughs> um, I enjoy a good romantic movie, well, they, the older ones, because the newer ones aren't quite as fun to watch because they're a little bit more risque. But um, romantic comedies, I loved reading books in high school. I read Jane Austen and I really love the book Pride and Prejudice. So there's definitely a romantic bent in my heart. Sometimes though I think it's easy to approach a romantic story in the Bible with the concepts we have of romance and we put kind of our ideas that we filled our head with into the story that we're reading. And so I want us to make sure that we go back to scripture. Um, this love story in the Bible holds a much deeper purpose than the love stories of the movies we watch and the books we read. Um, we need to always look at anything we read in Scripture through the lens of Scripture. So we want to make sure that we interpret Ruth, not based on our love of Ruth, but our knowledge of the Scripture and the appreciation we come for the book of Ruth. So I do want to speculate for a moment because I read this um, in one of the authors that I was reading and I thought it was kind of a little fun exercise. If we were going to cast Ruth for the role in a movie, what would she look like? Would she be tall and thin? Would she look like the movie stars of today? Um, I think she would probably definitely have dark hair and would have dark eyes, would be my hunch. Um, would she be short? Would she be tall? Would she be thin? Or would she be solid? <laughs> well, at the end of this chapter, we see that she has an 80-pound bag on her back. <laughs> so she's not a thin little wisp. <laughs> but Ruth probably doesn't look anything like what we see in the movies today. She's not a billboard type person. Um, we're never talked about her appearance. They never mention her appearance in the book of Esther. They talk about how beautiful Esther was. Sarah, we know, was beautiful. Rebecca was beautiful. Uh, Rachel was beautiful. So when women are beautiful, it's noted in scripture. There's no comment about Ruth and her appearance. Now when we look at Boaz, there's no indication that he's this suave, handsome man. In fact, by his own description, he's old and he can't compete with the younger men based on his own description of himself. There's no hint that he possessed any extraordinary features that would have made him stand out. If you think about the cover of a book, I don't think Ruth and Boaz would have made it. <laughs> so what do we see in the book of Ruth? I think we see two individuals that are not brought together because of some romantic passion. They're brought together because of the providence of God. And that's the hand that's moving this story. So as we take this wonderful opportunity to dive into this book, let's not lose sight of what Scripture is telling us about this love story. It's a beautiful love story, but it's not a typical love story. This is a love story about the quality of the heart, not the appearance of the person. So what I want to do first is I want to start us out with a definition of the role of the kinsman redeemer. In chapter 2, or act 2, never forget this is played out like a, uh, like a, a play. And so act 2, Naomi introduces us into the idea of Boaz being a uh, kinsman redeemer. 
Now, when you look at the book of Ruth, the word kinsman is, is referenced about 10 times, depending on the translations that you used. And this year, I used the Legacy Standard Bible for the translation because I wanted to make sure that I was reading as close to the original as I could read. And I think that's how um, the book that um, the Master's College put out was a little bit clearer and more... Um, cohesive to the original text. So I've been reading in the Legacy Standard and the word kinsman is used ten times. Two of the times it's used to refer to someone who's a distant relative or an acquaintance. The rest of the time it's, rever it's used in reference to a redeemer. And so I think um, from the commentaries I looked at and what we know about the kinsman redeemer in light of Boaz is Boaz is a distant relative of Elimelech. He's not a brother, he's not an uncle, and that's significant to know because as you go on back down into the role of the kinsman redeemer, um, there's specific roles that are for that. But he's a distant relative. And in chapter 2, Naomi also calls him one of the kinsman redeemers, meaning that there's more than one. So we have a hint that there's someone else coming into the scene. Readers in the past would have readily understood the term kinsman redeemer, but we don't. We don't use that term. That's not something we use to describe our relatives. So the role of the kinsman redeemer is more like the role of someone who's an heir. And there's obligations that go with this role. The first obligation is, and I listed the passages where these roles are described. Um, the first obligation is to redeem property. If a man dies without an heir, it's the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to assure or to secure that property for the family so that it stays within the family. And what you'll see with the kinsman redeemer is a lot of their obligation ties back to um, the keeping the line intact. The family line is very important. And God institutes this, this role in order to protect families that go through these situations, just like what Naomi is facing and Ruth is facing. So the, he redeems the property. He's also responsible for, for financial support. She, he's responsible to provide for support for the widow and her children as necessary for long term, for the life of those people. This is an obligation he takes on. He's also responsible to protect the rights and the justice of those people. For a woman who's now a widow and childless, she needs protection. She needs justice. She needs somebody to come alongside and have her back. And God instituted this to protect those that were the most vulnerable. And as you look in Bible times, one of the most vulnerable person in society was a widow. <clears throat> He's also responsible for restoring the dignity. He's responsible to restore the dignity and the social standing of the widow within the community. Again, protection. He's offering that, that veneer of protection over her. Um, the last thing he's responsible for, it's a liberate marriage. And this is in the case where a man dies without leaving an heir, the kinsman redeemer could marry the widow to provide an offspring. This was a practice called liberate marriage. And it's talked about in Deuteronomy 25. Again, the purpose to that is to protect the line of the family, to secure that that line doesn't die out. And um, it was the firstborn son would be born from that union, and that firstborn son would become the heir to the deceased man. 
So it was a very sacrificial duty that was called upon to be practiced. Now this is a concept that I said is talked about in Deuteronomy 25, but it's in Deuteronomy 25, it's very particular. It's talking about if a brother dies, his widow needs to marry his other brother. And that brother then will, through marriage with that wife, will pass on an heir for his brother. And so it's never necessarily referenced for distant relatives. And I think this is important because Elimelech has no brothers that are mentioned. And his sons, Malon and Chilion, have died. They've both died. So they have no brothers to carry on the line. So deliberate marriage doesn't necessarily apply here. It's a loose application, but it's not something that Boaz was bound to because he was a distant relative. <clears throat> and I think that's important because we have to ask ourselves, well, then why did Boaz get involved in Ruth's life and then also Naomi's life? Well, he does it because of the kindness of Ruth. We see back in chapter 2 that Boaz says about Ruth when he says, who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth the Moabitess who's with Naomi, and his, his foreman says she's with Naomi, and she's done all this care. He has heard about Ruth. He's heard what she has done for Naomi. <coughs> Naomi's reputation's gone on before her. But I think this also tells us that Boaz is aware of his relationship with Naomi, and he's aware of his need to care for her and to protect her. He's been watching how Naomi has been cared for. He knew about Ruth. He saw how Ruth had lavished her kindness on Naomi. And so when he's given the, the opportunity to lavish kindness on Ruth, he does so very quickly. And so Boaz is showing right off the bat in chapter 2 to be a man of integrity in the care of his family, even if he's not obligated to do this. So as we start out in Act 3, I want to go ahead and read the first five verses. And this is labeled the bold scheme. <clears throat> then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek a state of rest for you that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose young women you were? Behold, he's winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. So wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor and do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Let it be that when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies and you go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, I will do all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did all that was according to what her mother-in-law had commanded her. So in the opening of Act 3, everything's going to unfold in a very short time period. Basically from dusk one night to dawn of the next day. This is an overnight occasion. There's not a lot of stage changing because it's going to be mainly at the threshing floor. And it opens with Naomi's statement, Do I not have a responsibility to seek rest for you? I think what this shows us about Naomi is she's starting to come out of her, her despair. She knows she has a, a responsibility to Ruth, and she knows that as the widowed mother-in-law, she needs to, to care for the security and the welfare of her widowed daughter-in-law. She's concerned that Ruth needs a more permanent solution to her, will, her widowhood. It's been wonderful to have 
um, Boaz provide the food that he's provided, the extra food for Ruth to glean. But even in spite of that, they only probably have a few short weeks of provision before they're once again facing destitution and the, the harvest will be over and they'll be without means. So Naomi also recognizes the challenge that Ruth as a Moabite in Israel would face. Who would be willing to take a Moabite wife? Who would be willing to embrace the social stigma of a Moabite wife? Well, it's interesting that she has Boaz in mind because who's Boaz's mother? It's Rahab. So Boaz understands having a relative that's not from the Jewish culture. And so Naomi proposes for Ruth to find a husband. She's desiring to seek rest for Ruth. And the term rest is Manoah. And it translates into security. For a widowed woman, for any woman, security was having a husband. That was what gave them security. And that's what Naomi desires for Ruth. So Naomi tells Ruth, go wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go to the threshing floor. Now I think sometimes we have the idea of Ruth dressing in her best and getting all cleaned up. Ruth and Naomi were destitute widows. They didn't have best. When we studied the book of Esther, she had the best because she was preparing to go before the king. Ruth probably had one or two outfits that she could change into. She didn't have a best to put on. She didn't get to fix herself up. She didn't have jewelry. She was poor. So she cleaned herself up and Naomi said, take a cloak. And the cloak is actually more, instead of for appearance, it was more for covering on the cold, dark trek she was going to be taking to the threshing floor. And while she was there, it was more for warmth. Um, but what this does tell us, the fact that she makes a point of saying, put on your best, I think it's an implication for Ruth to take off her mourning clothes. Ruth may very well have still <coughs> been wearing her mourning clothes. And so Naomi is saying, it's time to change. It's time to move past the mourning of being a widow. And so Naomi says to do this, and Ruth does it. Naomi knows that Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor. I don't know how she knows this, except that Boaz, being a man of integrity and um, a good boss, which we saw in the last act, um, a good boss isn't going to leave his harvest unattended. He's going to stay with it to guard it. Mm -hmm. And in the day, again, always for, never, always forget, never forget, <laughs> never forget that this is in the context of the day of the judges when man is doing what is right in their own eyes. So Boaz probably is there to guard his, his crop. Um, now the threshing floor is an interesting subject. Um, it's located somewhere where there's a good breeze. So the speculation from the commentaries I looked at said the threshing floor would have been below Bethlehem. So she would have had to make a trek outside of Bethlehem down to the area that was the threshing floor because in the valley is where there would be a better breeze. And so what they do when they um, are at the threshing floor, this is where they separate the grain from the chaff during the winnowing process. And so I was like, well, I don't know really what the winnowing process is. So I looked up a video of the winnowing process. And the video, whether it's true or not, was in the caricature of back in the day of the Bible. And so a man came up and he had a donkey 
and behind the donkey was being pulled a big board. And this honestly makes more sense than taking a bag and hitting it with your hand because he had a big crop. He would have had a lot of wheat. So the wheat scattered on the floor. The donkey walks around the wheat with this big board to basically crush the stalks of the wheat. And that crushes them and it gets them ready to be winnowed. And so what they do after they crush the big stalks of the wheat is they separate out the stalks from the grain and the chaff and they put the <coughs> grain and the chaff together in a pile or among the, the floor. And then they take the winnowing fork, which you also read about in scripture, and they stick it in the pile of the, the harvest, the produce, either the wheat or the barley, and they throw it up in the air. And then as the breeze comes through, the chaff is carried away in the breeze and the grain falls to the ground, the good grain. So they do that several times to purify the grain so that the chaff is out. And we see John the Baptist using this illustration in the New Testament when he's talking about the judgment that's to come between the righteous and the wicked. How God would separate the white righteous in the kingdom from the wicked in judgment when the Messiah comes in order that the wicked would be blown away and the righteous would stay whole. And so this is a common practice, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. So probably the pile that Ruth would come and lay down by was probably the pile of grain that had been purified as they got the chaff out. Winnowing happened at the end of harvest. It's when all the crops had been brought in. The wheat and the barley, all those, the harvest had been finished. And this year would have been a good crop because remember they're coming out of a famine. So they would have been celebrating greatly. But because it was the time of the judges, what was going on in their celebrations? Well, the threshing floor was known to be a place of a lot of immorality because they were celebrating, they would get drunk with wine, and it was not uncommon to have prostitutes out at the floor of the threshing floor to sell their wares. Hosea 9 even talks about one of the judgments is Israel now had prostitutes working the threshing floor and they were content with that, but it also would lead to their judgment. So this is the atmosphere that Naomi sends Ruth out into during the cover of night. This is a situation that could have been very dangerous for her. She's to sneak down to the threshing floor, hang back in the shadows and watch Boaz. After he's eaten and gone to sleep, Ruth is to go in and pull back his robe a little bit, exposing his feet, and lie down and wait and do whatever he tells her to do when he wakes up. At the very least, Naomi's plan for Ruth is undeniably daring. At the worst, it's scandalous. Because if she is caught doing this, this would be <coughs> horrific for Ruth. But coming to her in the dead of night, she talked to Boaz the day before, in the, the chapter before, in the field, but that's because Boaz approached her. It wasn't her approaching Boaz. This is now Ruth coming to Boaz in the dead of night. So it's a very unorthodox situation that, Noab, that Naomi is putting um, Ruth into. But to add a little bit more unorthodoxy to the situation, if you look at the words that Naomi uses to describe this act, it, all, it adds even more scandal. Because all of these words, there's three basic sets of words that are loaded with sexual meaning. And they're double meanings. They can mean either sexual or sensual meanings, or they can mean um, not sensual. But we don't know Naomi's intent. And so um, if you look at the commentaries, and they all leave open the suggestion for sexual misconduct here.
For example, Ruth is to uncover Boaz's feet. Well, the word uncover may just mean to expose his feet and leave them bare. But it's also the same word that's used for nakedness. And, ex- and to use to describe when you're exposing yourself for sexual, sexual purpose. Ruth is to uncover his feet. The word feet is another one. It can either mean feet or it can be a euphemism for um, adultery. Having adultery. It can be for nudity. So, And then when Ruth is um, told to lie at Boaz's feet, the word lie can be either laid down or it's also used in scripture when it talks about the man going in and lying with his wife. And she conceives. So it has a strong sexual implication. Because of these double meanings, um, all of the commentaries I looked at left open the door for sexual misconduct here, for that possibility. Now, as I looked at that, I thought, we don't know. We don't know in Scripture what Naomi's intent was. We know what Boaz and Ruth do, but we don't know the (coughs) intent of Naomi. I don't know what she was suggesting to Ruth. Was she suggesting seduction, or was she suggesting just go lie at his feet and wait till Boaz wakes up, and then he's going to tell you what to do? I don't know. We're not given that knowledge. So why would the story writer include Naomi's language when it introduces such a conflict of what's the intent here? I think it serves two purposes. First is it's a good conversation starter because people are like, what are you going to do with Route 3? <laughs> so it adds to the conversation. But the second one, and this is the one where I'm speculating, but I think it has merit. I think the writer uses these words to highlight the moral integrity of Boaz and Ruth in the middle of a society that's doing what is right in their own eyes. I think it shows the contrast of the day they're living with the actions of Ruth and Boaz. And if nothing less, it shines a bright light on the integrity of Ruth and Boaz. And it shows the darkness of the day that they're living. I think Ruth and Boaz were godly. I don't think Ruth ever intended seduction, and I know Boaz didn't intend seduction by his response. Ruth's heart's pure, and Boaz's response is one of integrity. He's a godly man with good standing. There would have been nothing good and upright had Boaz been a man that would have slept with Ruth and then said, if somebody else doesn't marry you, I will. That would not have been a man of integrity. It would definitely have been representative of a man living in a time that men was doing what was right in their own eyes. But the beauty in all of this, in spite of the bold, unwise, non-prudent, dangerous plan that Naomi had concocted, what we see is God's providential hand walking through, protecting Ruth, and continuing his work. So the next thing we come to is the dangerous encounter in verses 7 to 13. And I'll go ahead and read those. And Boaz ate and drank, and his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Then it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled, and he bent forward. Behold, a woman was lying at his feet, and he said, Who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. So spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You've shown your lasting kindness, loving kindness, to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether rich or poor. So now, my daughter, do not fear. All that you say I will do for you, for my people within the gates of the city, know that you are a woman of excellence. And now it is true I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there's a kinsman redeemer 
closer than I. Stay this night, and it will be in the morning that if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you, but if he does not redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. So Ruth lays back down in the shadows of the threshing floor, and she keeps her eyes on Boaz. He appears, she tiptoes over, she pulls back the robe, exposing his legs and feet, and lies down to wait. Now, why would she expose his feet? Well, because he's going to wake up when they get cold. And that's what wakes him up. So about midnight, he gets cold, he sits up, and somebody's there. It's a woman. He doesn't recognize her. This is where Ruth's response is interesting. So far, she's followed Naomi's plan to the letter of the law. But now she deviates a little bit. She changes things up. Instead of for waiting for him to tell her what to do, she first identifies herself. Not as Ruth the Moabite. She says, I'm Ruth, your maid servant. There's humility there. She's not the Moabite, she's the maid servant. She uses this term of humility, and it's a posture of humility that she presents her request. She asks for Boaz to spread his wings over her. Now this phase, this phrase has two meanings. It can refer to the corner of the robe, literally, that was called the wing of the robe. Men would say, this is, my, this is spreading my wing. It's the wing of the rope. It could refer to that. It also could refer to a man who's interested in making a woman his wife. Now again, this is the man making the woman his wife. He would throw the corner of his robe over her, and it would be his way of saying, I want this woman to be my wife, and I'm ready to provide for her and protect her. I'm ready to cover her. Ruth is unmistakably revealing her desire for Boaz to become her husband. But there's a deeper layer to her words that we can see, especially in light of the next act. And I think that deeper layer is something we need to think about. In chapter 2, Boaz blesses Ruth. He says, May the Lord reward your kindness to Naomi, and may your wages be full from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Boaz had seen that Ruth had placed herself under the protecting wings of Yahweh under God's sheltering protection. And now Ruth is telling, not asking, she's requesting that Boaz be the very fulfillment of the prayer that he prayed in the last act. Back then, Boaz was wanting rest and security for Ruth. And now Ruth is essentially saying to Boaz, you have the the power to provide me with rest and security. You yourself be the answer to the prayer that you made on my behalf. Ruth is approaching Boaz with a request for marriage. And in that, she's invoking his role as a kinsman redeemer. Now remember, Boaz has no obligation to consider this proposal. He wasn't her brother or her cousin to her husband or to Elimelech. There's no legal binding obligation for him to marry her. And Ruth isn't coming saying, you must marry him, marry me. She's presenting him with her request. Will you go beyond the strict letter of the law and will you act in accordance with the spirit of the law and extend kindness to me? But it's important to understand the layer behind Ruth's request to Boaz. There's a deeper purpose that Ruth is getting to, and we see this when we look at the book of a whole, as a whole. We saw Naomi say to Ruth, it's time to go out and get a husband. Naomi's goal is for Ruth to find rest. Ruth's goal is not to find a husband. She's looking for an heir 
for Naomi. She's looking for rest for Naomi. It's not a marriage that she's asked after, first and foremost. What she really wants is for Naomi to have a kinsman redeemer. Her concern is for the redemption and the restoration of Naomi's family. Her first thought isn't herself and her own needs, it's Naomi. This is why she makes the plea to Boaz. She's needing a kinsman redeemer, but not for the sake of her marriage. It's for the sake of an heir to give to Naomi. Her purpose is to fulfill Naomi's heart desire by restoring the fullness of life to Naomi. Naomi is empty. Ruth wants to be able to restore fullness to Naomi. Ruth is a beautiful love story, but it's not a love story of romance. It's a love story because of the Hesed love that Ruth has toward Naomi. It's the faithful, loyal, sacrificial love that Ruth is demonstrating toward Naomi. And Boaz knows what Ruth is asking. He gets it. And he celebrates this. He calls it a kindness, and it's the same word, hesed. He recognizes the hesed love that Ruth has been demonstrating toward Naomi. It's not a romantic thing. He's not, he knows that Ruth is not saying, marry me so I can have a child. He's saying, he understands that Ruth is thinking of Naomi, and he blesses her for her unwavering loyalty to Naomi. This is a Moabite woman showing loyalty to an Israelite woman. That's no small thing. It's not Ruth's youth or her physical beauty that draws Boaz. It's her godliness and her kindness. He has a great appreciation for Ruth and her character and her actions. He's essentially saying that the kindness and loyalty of Ruth that's shown to him is even greater by giving him this opportunity is even greater than the kindness and the loyalty that she showed to Naomi. He recognizes that Ruth's actions go well beyond the actions of a daughter-in-law. Her devotion to Naomi is unquestionable. She's selfless and she's kind in the way she's thinking of Naomi and the way she's presenting this offer to Boaz. He sees the death, depth of Ruth's character and her genuine care for others. And this serves as a testimony to the beauty of her heart. That's what Boaz sees. And I think what we see in Ruth is her allegiance is to the Lord above all. She loves the God of Israel. She loves Yahweh. She's determined to provide for Naomi, to love Naomi in this sacrificial way. And I think what it shows us is that her love begins by a devotion to the Lord. And it outflows to others around her. So just as we're witnessing the most tender response of Boaz to Ruth's proposal, and if we were watching the play, the music would be beautiful, the strings would be playing, because here's Boaz giving the most beautiful tribute to Ruth for her selfless act. And then all of a sudden the music would change and there would be a dark, tense music coming in. And the suspense would be building because you'd think, well, what's going on? Because remember, we don't know the end because we're reading it through the reader's eyes. <laughs> we do know the end. But <laughs> get in with the story here, ladies. <laughs> get with the picture here. <laughs> this is a play. So the tense music starts. Well, why would the tense music come? Because Boaz drops a little bombshell. He says, I'm not the closest kinsman redeemer. There's another character in this story that we're going to meet that has the priority over Boaz to claim 
the obligation of kinsman redeemer. We don't know this man's name. In fact, when you look at the interpretation of this man, his name is Mr. So-and-so. So it is literally so-and-so. So he has no name. He's Mr. So-and-so. So before Naomi or Boaz can redeem Ruth and Naomi, he has to talk to and approach Mr. So-and-so. He has to give him the opportunity to fill in for the role of kinsman redeemer. Now, Boaz is going to take charge here. He's not telling Ruth, you need to go, you laid down at the wrong guy's feet, you need to go do Mr. So-and-so. He's not telling her that. He's saying, I'm going to take care of you. Boaz has already stepped in and is protecting, once again, Ruth. He said, I will approach this man on your behalf, on you and Naomi's behalf. I will approach him. Boaz is setting himself up as Ruth's protector. She doesn't have to go to the threshing floor again. Um, And also, Boaz has alleviated any fear in Ruth for the future because he's told her, if this man does not marry you, I will. He's, He's taken that fear away. Ruth can now be at peace knowing that she is secure. Now, if we're watching this play for the first time, we don't know the outcome. We're filled with suspense because don't you always have the one person you want to win? I am guilty of going to the end of the book to look and see because I don't like to wait. (laughs) These people would have had to wait till the end of the book. They don't know who's going to win. But we want Boaz. We don't want Mr. So-and-so. But we're going to have to wait to see what happens next week. But we can rest in confidence because we know God's providential hand is continuing to work. Behind the scenes, God's hand is quiet, it is hidden, but it is directing and drawing things together, just like he does for us today. Ruth isn't unique. God is doing the same thing in our lives every moment. We never need to despair. We don't need to think that we're alone and without his comforting security. Just as he never left Naomi and Ruth, Hebrews 13.5 tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. God's unwavering presence and support is always with us, whether we see his hand at work or not. He is with us. So now we're going to move on to Act 3, the results. So Luke, and this is verses 14 through 18. So Ruth lay down at his feet until morning and arose before one could recognize another. He said, let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing, hold it out. So she held it out. He measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you bear, my daughter? She told her that the man, all that the man had done, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Naomi, or Ruth, sleeps at the feet of Boaz. She wakes up early um, before the rest of the world has awakened so that she can go back to the city because this is what um, Boaz had suggested she do. He's concerned about protecting her reputation. If she was seen leaving his area, that would have caused scandal. And he didn't want that for her. After she gets up, Boaz measures out some grain for her. And this is key. Um, He doesn't want her. And this is why I say that even though Ruth is the main character right now, Naomi is still the focus. Boaz gives Ruth this grain because he doesn't want Ruth to go home empty-handed to Naomi. This is for the sake of Naomi. The six measures of barley is equivalent, from what I was reading, to about 80 pounds. I came out of Petco yesterday carrying a 50-pound thing of dog food. I thought that was heavy. 
Can you imagine? That's why I say Ruth was not Twiggy. <laughs> she was a solid German stock from Moab, <laughs> Moab. <laughs> woman. <laughs> she could carry her weight. Um, she loads it up in her cloak, and with Boaz's assistance, she sure secures it on her back and carries this load up the hill to Bethlehem. Remember I said the threshing floor is in the lower area. So she would have had to carry it up the hill. She was not delicate. But why does Boaz give this gift to Ruth? What does the gift signify? It might, and I'm speculating here, but based on what we know, it might have functioned as a type of down payment for Naomi, a reassurance, a means to convey to Naomi his commitment to seeing to their well-being. Naomi has two pressing needs. She's empty because of the famine, and she's empty because of her childlessness. Through the gift of the food, Boaz is reversing her emptiness in regards to the food. He's given her provision. Naomi is now full. So in verse 16, when Ruth comes to her mother-in-law, Naomi asks, how did it go, my daughter? What this question really is asking, it's asking the same question that Boaz asked of Ruth. Who are you? To ask, how is it going? What Naomi was getting to is, who are you now? Is Boaz caring for you? What's your identity? Who are you? Did this work out? Did my plan work out? Because you know Naomi probably didn't sleep much during that night. So Ruth tells her all that has happened. And she gives her the gift of the barley from Boaz. And then in verse 18, the focus shifts again back to Naomi. Naomi, we see her heart changing. She's showing us that she's moving from this place of bitterness and emptiness to a place of newfound hope and rest. I think this is a beautiful picture of Naomi. Her response shows us a woman whose heart has been scarred from the weight of the bitterness and the emptiness that she's carried with her for so many years. And now we're witnessing that transformation as she's being exposed to hope. God is bringing hope back to her life. That maybe there's a kinsman redeemer that will bring life back to her. I think it is so sweet to see Naomi's life changing before our eyes. We've seen her walk through deep waters and we've buried, I've seen her bear that burden of bitterness. So now to see her returning back to joy is such a sweet picture of restoration. And after this, after she hears Ruth's account, I think Naomi can rest. She knows that Boaz will respond as the man that she knows him to be, which is a godly, honorable man. And I think she knows that Yahweh's brought them this far, and maybe, just maybe, Yahweh has something beautiful in the, in the future for her to hang on to. But they'll have to wait. They'll have to trust. Because right now it's not up to Ruth, it's not up to Boaz, it's not up to Naomi. It's up to the providential hand of God. So as we see the lights in Act 3 dim and the curtain goes down, we have to wait for the next week to see what happens. But one last observation I want to leave you with. These are the last words that we hear Ruth speak in this book. It reminds me of a time when um, we did the tooth fairy with our kids. And I, Michaela being the firstborn, we trial and error with the firstborn. You know how that is. <laughs> Sometimes you err. <laughs> and on the tooth fairy, I erred. I thought it would be really sweet for the tooth fairy to write her a goodbye note. 
<laughs> she's in there sobbing <laughs> because the tooth fairy said goodbye. <laughs> and as I was looking at Ruth, and I thought, she's leaving. And I thought, I almost could get a little teary because I loved studying Ruth. And Ruth is leaving. That's the last we get to hear from her. She's still on stage. But there's no more, no more words that we hear from Ruth. The focus becomes Naomi again. And honestly, even though the book of Ruth is titled Ruth, Naomi is the focus. Naomi is the focus of Ruth. And Ruth will now take the background. And Naomi will once again come to the forefront. Now, Ruth has had an important role to play. And she gives us a beautiful love testimony of Hesed love. It's a love that if we are God's children, we share with our Father God. God loved us with a loyal, faithful, self-sacrificing, steadfast love. And we can emulate that love to others because as He loves us, we love others. And that's a love we can demonstrate through His power to others around us. And I think as we demonstrate his love to others, his love for us is felt so much more richly because we understand that love. It's like a boomerang. The love comes back to us through his tender providence, his guiding, sheltering, caring love for us. And we can trust that love. Let's go ahead and pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you so much for the precious words of Ruth. Lord, I thank you for the glimpses of redemption and restoration that we're seeing now go on through the story. And Lord, we know the end. We know how beautiful it is. But I thank you, Lord, that you've used people to demonstrate to us life and to give us the assurance, God, that no matter what our choices are, God, we, we desire godly choices, but sometimes our sinful flesh, the head just rises, Lord. I'm so thankful that I can't thwart your plan. I'm so thankful that I'm secure in your love. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for guiding us and caring for us and protecting us. Go with the ladies now as they spend time around the table, Lord, discussing your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.